a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. China and the United States, the two largest economies the world has ever known, two of the mightiest militaries, and two technological powerhouses have clashed on geopolitics, in trade, and over values. Have they reached the point of no return, ending the era of openness and cooperation as we knew it? Or will they escape the curse of history and find a new paradigm of great power coexistence, or to borrow Harry Kissinger's word, of co-evolution? Hello and welcome to this special program, Seeking the Right Track, Beijing, Washington and beyond. I'm Wang Wen. Our eyes are on San Francisco, where Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden had this hours-long talk. President Xi spoke in the plainest language possible about what he believes to be the right future for China-U.S. relations. My view is consistent, which is that major country competition is not the prevailing trend of current times and cannot solve the problems facing China and the United States or the world at large. Planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed, and one country's success is an opportunity for the other. That was a positive and constructive tone. In fact, this has been a consistent Chinese position in the past 10 years. President Biden said the two sides made real progress during this meeting before posting on social media acts that it is vital that President Xi and himself understand each other, quote-unquote, leader to leader. I just concluded several hours the meetings with President Xi, and I believe they were some of the most constructive and productive discussions we've had. I've been meeting with President Xi since both of us were vice president over 10 years ago. Our meetings have always been candid and straightforward. We haven't always agreed, but they've been straightforward. And today, build on the groundwork related over the past several months of high-level diplomacy between our teams. We've made some important progress, I believe. What does the Chinese side see coming out of this summit? Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi briefed the press in San Francisco. The Xi-Biden meeting in San Francisco is an important gathering to enhance trust, dispel doubts, manage differences, and expand China-U.S. cooperation. The meeting also injects certainty and stability into a changing world. San Francisco is not the end. It should be a new beginning. The two countries decided to enhance cooperation on climate, artificial intelligence, anti-drug trafficking, and exchanges among students, business people, and sportsmen. The communications between the two militaries are also expected to be resumed, though Beijing warns that respecting China's core national interests, including Taiwan, is crucial. These are all encouraging statements, and they have been months in the making. But the success of these initiatives lies in their implementation, and in not letting politics get in the way of good policies. Will this summit put the floor under a worryingly deteriorating relationship before it rebounds? Or is it merely an exercise in window-dressing some of the fundamental and structural differences that are destined to resurface over time? The two presidents last met in Bali, Indonesia, on the sideline of the G20 summit. The Bali meeting reassured the world and rekindled hopes of reversing the downward spiral in China-U.S. relations. President Biden said the U.S. doesn't want a new Cold War with China, while President Xi said pushing for decoupling and severing supply chains ran counter 
to the principles of market economy and undermine international trade rules. But it was not a smooth sail from Bali to San Francisco. First, it was the U.S. fuss over what Beijing calls a satellite balloon flying over the United States. Then the U.S. approves a 500 million arms sales to Taiwan and numerous sanctions targeting Chinese companies and technological capabilities. Yet Beijing's position towards Washington has been consistent. It wants a cooperative and constructive relations with the U.S. economically, politically and otherwise. But China will also stand up to American provocations and bully. What many believe to be Beijing's consistency and strategic patience paid off. When the noises and politics died down, the two sides carved out new paths for engagement. In May, Chinese top diplomat Wang Yi met with U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan in Vienna, Austria, and called for a return to Bali agenda. A series of high-level talks and meetings followed. What's the cornerstone for U.S.-China bilateral ties? Um, well, I think it's the U.S. people and the Chinese people. Two countries sometimes also have different views. And so we have to be able to come together at the table, have discussions, and work on solutions together. I think people-to-people -people ties is really important because we develop understanding. First visiting the United States in his 30s in 1985, President Xi Jinping appreciates the value of people-to-people -people engagement. He sent a letter to China-U.S. Sister Cities Conference to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, to the U.S.-China Youth and Student Exchange Association. My two visits to Washington State left me with beautiful memories. I recall vividly wonderful performance by Lincoln High School students eight years ago. And to Philadelphia Orchestra. The Chinese leader also met with Henry Kissinger, Bill Gates. We need to learn about each other's societies and cultures, I think, in order for us to have peace together. And uh, I think that's where the people-to-people -people, uh, diplomacy is uh, a very strong uh, help in that direction. Now, throughout history, great powers do clash and the rule of the jungle often prevail in global politics. But if we let the previous patterns dictate the terms of the future, we're in big trouble. China and the United States need to find a new paradigm whether they like it or not. In the lead-up to the historic Paris Climate Agreement, I sat down with then-U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, now Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. How would you characterize the state of U.S.-China relationship today? Does the U.S. see China as a true partner or an inevitable rival? Well, we definitely don't view uh, uh, China as an inevitable rival. We view China with hopes and possibilities of increasing partnership. Uh, it's a very important relationship. We're going to focus on climate change very, very significantly. Climate change offers us enormous opportunities to make choices about energy and energy policy, which will open up a vast new market for all of our countries and help solve the problem of climate change. So we're particularly interested in working on the 20, for, uh, 2015 targets that have to be announced by both of our countries, and we want to try to work on those together. And together they worked. It was cooperation between the United States and China that largely set the direction for global efforts on climate change. Now as COP28 is taking place soon, the world is once again looking at China and the United States for leadership. For me, this is a symbol of hope, that two countries that may have differences in other areas can sit down to discuss this topic of global implications. 
Mexico has just suffered an enormous catastrophe caused by global climate change and the entire world is looking to see what decisions will be made at COP28. In la COP28. So I hope that President Xi and President Biden will come to an understanding as to how they can work together to be able to help save the planet and to create more development opportunities for those countries that are currently marginalized. And it's not just about climate. On trade and global supply chain, despite the hype surrounding decoupling and de-risking, and despite COVID, China-U.S. trading goods hit record highs in 2022, reaching 690 billion U.S. dollars. That is according to U.S. official data. And in fact, if one looks at trade numbers between 2013 and 2022, they remained amazingly steady, ranging from $560 billion and $690 billion. But things could have been better, a lot better. According to the Peterson Institute for International Economics, ending the trade war with China would reduce America's CPI by 1.3 percentage points. The National Retail Federation also calculated that additional tariffs imposed on Chinese goods since 2018 have cost U.S. importers some $136 billion and U.S. consumers $1,200 per household a year. Moreover, according to the Tax Foundation, tariffs have cost Americans $80 billion, reduced GDP by 0.22%, and eliminated 173,000 full-time jobs since 2018. But if you look at trade, that's still growing. Uh, what do you make of that? When you have developed sources, it's much more difficult to change a supply chain than political people think. Tariffs have created some supply chain disruption, but the theory of tariffs was flawed. So what it was, it didn't return trade to the United States, it was a diversion of trade. Uh, also, people haven't realized it's inflationary, so the cost of the goods manufactured in Vietnam because of the infrastructure and other problems in getting going in Mexico is higher than it was in China. So that's actually added slightly to inflation. The trade tensions between China and the United States have brought significant uncertainty and anxiety into the lives of ordinary people. One of the sectors hit hardest is agriculture. What used to be the most productive and promising areas of win-win cooperation between these two countries. Meet John Kiefner a farmer from Manhattan, Illinois, a third-generation farmer working on this very land. He, along with his fellow soybean farmers, has found himself bearing the brunt of the politicization of trade. We knew as soon as the trade war escalated and the price of soybeans dropped so bad that we were in trouble. I'm old enough to remember embargoes with countries before, and you know that once you lose a buyer, it's really hard to get him back. As China and the United States agree to relaunch high-level consultations in trade and commerce, there's renewed hope and optimism from these American soybean farmers. I was one of those farmers that just started selling very aggressively. And uh, one of the reasons the price is still very strong is many farmers have sold. Literally every time I sold, and I sold in some increments, a couple weeks later it got better. So I just sold more and then it finally ran out of grain to sell. Their buying has been very meaningful and very significant on multiple fronts, be it corn, soybeans, pork, uh, even ethanol, it's real and it does make a big difference to the American farmer to have that demand out, sitting out there wanting our product. What about the effects of tariff war launched by Donald Trump against China? 
which was largely inherited by Joe Biden, who even doubled down on China in so-called strategically sensitive areas, such as semiconductors. According to Peterson Institute for International Economics, tariffs have hurt U.S. manufacturing output, employment, and exports. American importers did bear the costs of tariffs in the form of higher prices. The U.S. tariffs that remain in place continue to impede American companies' access to imports. Higher costs hurt American firms' competitiveness in the U.S. and international markets. I don't think anybody can stop globalization. Many people can try to slow it down, but at the end, the globalization is going to move forward because the anti-globalization, the cost will be too high. Politicizing the economy hurts not just the United States. The IMF's forecast is for global growth to slow from 3.5% in 2022 to 3% in 2023 and 2.9% in 2024, well below the average of 3.8% between the year 2000 and 2019, a period before a high-profile China-U.S. economic confrontation. In the era of nearshoring and friendshoring, more companies and indeed more countries increasingly find themselves having to navigate through these geopolitical complexities. Ti smo mi preuzimali obavezu da ćemo zbog naše pripadnosti Europskoj uniji i u NATO. And we never committed that because we want to join NATO and the EU, we intend to break our traditional friendships. You know, in Montenegro, we share the belief that it's crucial to ensure a higher level of harmony in geopolitical relations. Obviously, we now live in a time where geopolitical relations are at a very delicate stage, but this should not be the norm. So in our language, we say that the behaviors of others cannot build our family. Our family's behavior cannot build another family, meaning that if external forces come to impose their ideology, they divert the vision of a nation. If we are part of globalization, we must accept to go together, win together, and be together, because human life is universal. The implications of China-U.S. relationship are indeed global, and there are so many more areas that require cohesion, not confrontation, from combating pandemics and public health cooperation to joint scientific research and academic collaboration, and to face perhaps the ultimate disruption of all, artificial intelligence. China and the United States have both launched the initiatives aimed at shaping AI regulations, and talks between the two sides on regulating the military use of artificial intelligence Reducing the potential risks from the deployment of unreliable AI applications are crucial. But in reality, there are a whole host of constraints and structural challenges to China-U.S. relations. In October 2023, the Biden administration announced a latest round of export controls on China to stop Beijing's technological advances. One of the important purposes of the CHIPS Act is to ensure that no American money or foreign technologies or American technologies bleed into the Chinese semiconductor ecosystem unless China itself can provide the, the innovation to take that ecosystem up to the, to, the, to the next level. The whole purpose of the American of the CHIPS Act is to use that as a lever and a tool to ensure that they don't help China in any way in expanding its semiconductor prowess. 
That's why, despite the recent warming of ties, many experts who have observed China-U.S. relations for decades struck a tone of caution. I think short-term optimist, but medium and longer-term pessimist. Short-term optimist because, number one, all the visits of senior U.S. officials and Wang Yi's visit to Washington is all in preparation for this meeting in, in APEC. So I think uh, this, is, this is actually short-term. Uh, it's conducive to a better or calmed relationship between China and the United States. Uh, Long-term, strategically, I don't think it's possible to think about a U.S. which accepts that there are multipolar powers coming through. It's very difficult for U.S. to get rid of their exceptionalism mentality. Exceptionalism is a mentality that over the decades has underlain American efforts to contain a near-peer competitor. First Germany, then the Soviet Union and Japan, and now China. The United States must make sure that we do not have a peer competitor for our security. Th think about what this means. This is a brutalist philosophy. The proposition is that even if China were to change in some of the ways that proponents of engagement have been said that we hope it changes, even if they just as a thought experiment adapted our constitution and our laws wholesale, we should still try to limit their growth merely because we shouldn't have a peer competitor. That is the proposition, regardless of beliefs, regardless of people striving for human flourishing along the lines that we have been prescribing to the world for decades. If they actually appear to be succeeding, regardless of their beliefs, we must stop them, even if it means pushing them back toward poverty. Robert, have I, I misunderstood I, Robert, the proposition? I don't, I don't mean those questions cynically or sarcastically, but what's wrong with that? Everything's wrong with that, my friend, because number one, you can't stop something that's unstoppable. And number two, if every power adopts that mentality, we're destined for perpetual wars. Some people see the world from a scarcity frame, zero sum. I don't. I see the world from a framework of abundance. I don't begrudge other people's success. I admire it. The more successful China is, the more successful we all will be. And I think that's incredibly important. Newsom's appeal to a win-win relationship reminds some people of America's engagement approach towards China, which Henry Kissinger helped engineer back in the 1970s. What do you think current and future leaders, young people in both countries, should remember from those weeks and months in 71, 72, where you engaged in behind-the-room maneuvers as well as public diplomacy. Those weeks and months that proved to change the world. What can the young people learn these days? You have to treat each other with mutual respect. And neither side should try to impose its pre preference by pressure. And in the past decade, out of all the stories we've covered in either China or the United States, the one of Steve Orleans, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, sticks with us. Tell us a bit about the story with your late brother and how a bond between Americans and Chinese through commerce changed his perception about what you do. That's a long story, but the... the um, if you wanted to find someone who's the opposite of me, you would find my brother. You know, that he, in all of my years here, we were very close, we shared a room for 18 years, and then he went to college and then joined the US military, then ended up in Ohio, and basically lived his whole life, he went to Ohio State Law School, lived his whole life in Ohio, 
and in Dayton. And I watched this city of Dayton be hollowed out. It was a traditional manufacturing center in the center of the United States. And this company closed, you know, National Cash Register closed, General Motors closed, the facility which built cars was abandoned. And I watched through his eyes. Now, again, he was in Ohio. All the years I spent here, which is half of my adult life, he never came here once. And he never quite understood, you know, my initial work here was helping U.S. companies invest. And he never quite understood that. But then years later, Chinese companies started going to the United States to invest. And lo and behold, one of the largest Chinese investments was made three miles from my brother's house. Mm. So I went to the opening. It mm. was, was Fuyao Boli, and Cao Duang is, is the chairman. And he invited me to speak at the opening. And it was an amazing experience because Governor Kasich was there, Senator Brown was there, Congressman Turner was there. The whole political establishment of Ohio was there. And I watched Dayton be reborn. It was reborn because of this investment. So stores and dry cleaners and schools suddenly had 2,500 American families got paychecks. Families got paychecks because of Cao Duang's investment, because of Fuyao Boli's investment. So it was this rebirth and as I sp of Dayton. So as I spoke and I saw my brother's community reborn, I said, ah, and he's, he's left us. So I said, ah, he probably is looking down from heaven. He says, oh, I finally understand what you do. And Steve is not alone. Remember the flying tigers? They fought side by side with their Chinese brothers and sisters and helped liberate China from the Imperial Japanese occupation during the World War II. The people are the same. They just want to live in peace. It's something that, that formed you as a man. As and, a person, isn't And it? also, it made lifelong friends. We, so a, a group of men started friendship in China. When they got home, they said, let's continue. My father would be 103 in a week had he survived. And he was a veteran of the Pacific Theater during World War II. And he would have been so appreciative to know that all of us had the opportunity to understand just a part of what happened and what it took for all of us to come together to make a difference and end that war. And now they're back, 80 years on, to the land where they and their fellow soldiers fought and died for. We should sing for that, shouldn't we? As David Booth once did and still does today. He's a violinist of Philadelphia Orchestra. The orchestra just toured China to celebrate the 50th anniversary of their first trip to China in 1973. Yes, it's been uh, quite a wonderful, remarkable journey. I'm sort of amazed that I've lasted for 50 years, but I'm very glad. It was my first time taking a trip outside of the United States. And so to come to China was, was remarkable in itself. I mean, I had course heard about China from school books and from geography and things and seeing it on TV but I, I never dreamed that I would would be able to come and see it especially at such an early time 
And uh, the experience of that and the people that I've met and making music with the people that I've met throughout the years has been incredibly important and one of the most satisfying things I have to say in my life. And that is what relations between China and the United States ought to be like, where people bond and become friends, where students study in each other's schools and universities, where scientists research together for vaccines for the next global public health emergency. In your book on China, you coined the word co-evolution right. in the Pacific community. What exactly does that mean? Well, what it means is we should not require China to act like we do. China should not expect us to act like China does in all respects. What we should expect from each other or try to achieve is that we each develop our societies in the way we think are most appropriate. But as we do this, we keep in mind that we move towards similar and sometimes identical goals. So we, pros we progress side by side, but not necessarily to the same music. In San Francisco, out of his incredibly tight schedule, President Xi Jinping made sure that he got time to catch up with his old friends. Among them, the host family whom he stayed with in Muscatine, Iowa, nearly 40 years ago. And the veterans of Flying Tigers who fought with the Chinese soldiers during the Second World War. All a testament to his belief that yes, Politics and policies do change, but the great people of China and the United States all to remain friends. For any great cause to succeed, it must take root in the people, gain strength from the people, and be accomplished by the people. Growing China-U.S. friendship is such a great cause. Let us galvanize the Chinese and American peoples into a strong force to renew China-U.S. friendship, advance China-U.S. relations, and make even greater contributions to world peace and development. It is high time that China and the United States moved away from the old paradigms of great power conflicts, the exclusive camps and the proxy wars, and show the world that a new type of great power relationship is possible. With that, we come to the close of this edition of The Hub on CGTN. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. I'll see you again soon.